Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 624th edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Daniel Feuerstein. I'll give you American perspective of our clubs, leagues, players, national team, and other fabulous moments. Get your daily reading from me and other writers over at Beyond the 90 at beyondthe90.substack.com and locally on the New York Red Bulls at Red Bulls News Network. But as always, this show is dedicated to the American game for you, the American fan. Chat room is open. Come on in. Discuss amongst yourselves if you like. You have a question for me. I'll try to answer it to the best of my abilities. Um, I want to thank everyone last night uh, on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, on the space as we talked about the situation between the head of the MLS Players Association, the Players Union, colluding with Major League Soccer to have all players involved in the Division I clubs to allow them to opt out of the Open Cup. Now, once again, when you're saying collusion, obviously some of you are going to be saying, well, it's, you know, what they're doing, it's not a crime. It, it's not about a crime being committed. It's all about why the head of the Players Association, the Players Union, is going along with Major League Soccer in the rhetoric saying the players don't believe in it anymore, that they don't want to be a part of it anymore because it's so much fixture congestion now in MLS. Well, I think what we have seen, ladies and gentlemen, what we have seen and what I have witnessed as well is this, the players want to be a part of the competition. When I was at MLS's media day at the Miami Beach Convention Center in uh, earlier in this month of January on the 11th, the questions were asked to both Jordan Morris of the Seattle Sounders and Hector Herrera from the Houston Dynamo. And they said they want to be a part of the tournament. They don't want to be opted out of the Open Cup. They want to play in it because it has so much history. And then, of course, the tweet from Charles Bohm, who is uh, currently doing a Zoom with Austin FC for the preseason. He asked a question to Mr. John Gallagher about it, a player on Austin FC's roster. And from that tweet, the quote from John Gallagher was, It came as a shock to a lot of us. We were left in the dark. We saw a lot of it come out on Twitter. Unfortunately, the players didn't have a lot of say. I think it's a great competition. So once again, if we are believing from Mr. Bob Foose to say that the players that he represents in the union end of things, to say that the players don't want to be in the Open Cup anymore, And yet, here are three great examples, and of course, this one that's really telling, and great job by Charles Bohm, who covers Major League Soccer in the Washington, D.C. area. But once again, if these players did not want to be in the Open Cup anymore, how come they're not saying it? How come they're not aligning with themselves, or all the players are, with Major League Soccer, and with Mr. Bob Foose, their representative, who is supposed to be on top of these things. In my mind, Bob Foose has been compromised. Bob Foose 
is basically now, in my mind, a puppet for Major League Soccer. If I want to be to be associated with the Players Union, and I want this gentleman to represent my interests along with the rest of the players that either I play with or against on the pitch for 90 minutes league competition, open cup competition, international cup competition in the club department. I would like to think this man has our back. But now he is proving to all of us that he does not have their backs. Now, if some of you think, well, this is just one thing out of many, that's not the point. Because now, the big question is this. Do the players trust this man to cut a fair end of the collective bargaining agreement every time those contracts expire? Or is he going to be in line with what MLS wants? And that's what these players need to do. Whoever the player reps are, they must bring everyone together and say, do we trust Bob Foose to do the job? To be our speaking end of the negotiating table. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the huge question, isn't it? That, ladies and gentlemen, is the question that all of us need to basically be asked. And we need an answer. Because you will never see this in the National Football League, Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, or the National Basketball Association. Because the unions are strong. They will fight for each other every time there is a conversation with the league. Because the commissioner is fighting for the owners who run the league. And the question will always be asked, who will have the players' backs when it comes to the negotiation table? Because these competitions are part of the negotiations going back and forth. And if we don't have, or if they don't have, I should say, the proper person to fight for their beliefs, for their causes, to have a fair working CBA, a fair working collective bargaining agreement, and be involved in competitions that matter, well then, problem there. That's the big question mark, isn't it? That is the question mark that some of these players, or all these players that perform in Major League Soccer, must put forth at the doorstep of Bob Foose. Because if he's kept them in the dark, then it, to me, he should no longer have a job. Now, I'm not saying they got to go and find Donald Fear, who has done many, many things for both Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League. But at least they should have someone who is strong enough to go out and represent their behalf the proper way. Because if they don't, well, here we go again. Now, I have no experience in collective bargaining agreements, so I cannot subject myself to this situation. But I do understand why these things happen. And I do understand why this must not happen ever again. Because now... 
it's no longer the outrage of the supporters. It is now no longer U.S. soccer rejecting that request. It is now in the court of the MLS players to make sure that their fortress has no holes in the wall. There is no blemish on the record or there's no dent in the armor. Because I'm telling everyone right now, if this does happen again and the players will again have no say, it could be over for the Open Cup with MLS. But once again, this is something that cannot happen again. And listen, I understand U.S. soccer has not done an amazing job making the Open Cup more of a priority. But they are doing it now, better late than never. But still, though, once again, as I've said many, many times on Beyond the 90, I've said it here on this show, Major League Soccer is not the governing body of the sport in this country. U.S. soccer is the governing sport, the governing body for the sport in this country. USA Hockey doesn't do anything with the NHL. USA Basketball does nothing with the NBA. There's no really USA Baseball. It's really Major League Baseball. And yes, I know USA Football, but it's not real because it's really the NFL. But once again, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot have this happen again. Because if it happens again, the sport will crumble in front of our eyes. Because then it's only the majors that matter and the minors that don't. Everything is connected and that is why the Open Cup is the true bastion of soccer freedom for all of us in this country. Plain and simple. We, only, we don't have one mechanism, but the Open Cup is about what it really means to celebrate the sport in this country. Because I'm telling you right now, if the Premier League ever said no more FA Cup for us, the backlash would be 10 million times as worse. If there is no more Copa del Rey in Spain for La Liga, the same thing. No Copa Italia for the Serie A. No Pokal Cup with the Bundesliga. You would not get the giant killing stories that Saarbrücken did to Bayern Munich or Hercules did to Ajax for the KNVB Cup in the Netherlands. Giant killings in the MLS level would be gone. Giant killings in any top first division league would be gone if said owners did not become a part of the magic of these FA Cup type tournaments. This is sacrosanct. Must be preserved. And it must be done on the up and up. So in my mind, Mr. Foos, either shape up or get shipped out. Ladies and gentlemen, i got a great show for you tonight. Now, I, I rarely have these moments talking to famous football writers, soccer writers, whether they're in the United States or in England or in Europe. And tonight, 
I have for you a recorded interview with Mr. Jonathan Wilson, who covers the Premier League and football in England and Europe and South America as well for both The Guardian and The Observer. He's written many books. And I've also, of course, this is an American soccer show, and I did ask him about Americans in the Premier League. But even though this is an American soccer show, why would I have this guy on? Like I said, this is an opportunity I did not want to lose, and I feel it is great for you to hear his opinions as well. So with that in mind and all that said, here it is right now, the interview with Mr. Jonathan Wilson from The Guardian and The Observer to talk about football as a whole, both in his career, the Premier League, Americans in the Premier League, VAR in Europe, and FIFA as a whole. Here it is right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the American Soccer Show. This is Daniel Feuerstein. I rarely get an opportunity to interview a well-known football writer over in England, as well as covering everything in the UK and in world football. Uh, This is Mr. Jonathan Wilson, who covers the game for The Guardian, The Observer, and for every other publication, as well as writing several football books on the game in England and everywhere else. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, it, it's really amazing to have you on, uh, hearing everything you've done covering the game, not just in, in the Premier League, but all over Europe and around the world as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm off to Abidjan tomorrow for the Cup of Nations, so um, yeah, I've been very fortunate. That I've, I've traveled a lot with the job. And I think I think you have to do that to, to get the game in context. So, Cup of Nations, Argentina, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, yeah, it's all it's all there. It's absolutely brilliant. And what amazes you sometimes when you visit? We all know the game is the same no matter what, but but the cultures that go along with the game. What did that mean for you when you uh, were making these treks to other parts of the world? I think the extraordinary thing is is how universal football is. Um, I think David Goldblatt, in his, his most recent book, uh, The Football Age, he, he makes the point that nothing, no cultural mode has ever been as universal as football is now. And so I was in I was in Ethiopia in 2015. Um, I decided holiday. I was I was visiting some rock churches in Malabella, this sort of remote village. And it was just as Mourinho was going through his, his meltdown at Chelsea. And I had, had lunch in a restaurant and said to the, uh, the woman who ran the restaurant, is there anywhere where I can watch the Chelsea-Liverpool game today? And she said, oh, yeah, the, the, uh, the restaurant manager, he, he'll be going to see you. Know, speak to him, he'll take you. And we went to this cafe, yeah, as I say, in this remote village. And there must have been 200 people in that cafe watching that game. And he said, oh, look, I've brought you to the posh place. Um, but if you want to see what the real fans, yeah, how they watch it, let's go and watch Swansea v Arsenal. And so we went to, um, it was sort of like a, a, a muddy bank that they hammered benches into with a big screen at the front, there was a tarpaulin over the top. And I, I think there must have been 500 people in there. And it, I, I think he said that was one of four or five of these you know, video all type things, plus a couple of cafes like the one we've been in. So I realised that in this fairly remote part of Ethiopia, 20% of the adult, oh, very male, but 20% of the adult male population of the town, the village, was watching Premier League football that Saturday afternoon. And I can't believe there's been, been anything that's had, had that kind of reach. Um, there's a moment in the Swansea-Arsenal game when, when Swansea got, and the most, most of the people there sporting Arsenal, there was a moment when, when Swansea got a free kick, Gilby Tickerson steps up to take it. And you can hear the sort of hum of anticipation. He's oh, yes, Gilby Sigurdsson. And everybody knows Gilby Sigurdsson's good at free kicks. And you sort of think, he's got to be the most famous Icelandic person who's, who's ever existed. Um, so I, I think that's the extraordinary thing about football, that it is, it does seep into every walk of life in every country. And, and I really don't think there's anywhere on the globe you, you can go where you will not find people who, who will engage you in a conversation about football. Absolutely. I, I love doing, I love talking football. I, I love going, talking with other people from other cu- cultures, other countries. 
and all of a sudden you just strike up a conversation and you could just probably last there for maybe three weeks and you'd still be having these great uh, conversations with all these different people. Yeah, exactly. I think you get to a certain age, you know, I'm in, in my sort of uh, late mid-40s, maybe it's the politest way of putting it, and I, I'd go another you know, couple of pints with mates, and we suddenly find that for you know, the previous 15 minutes, we haven't really done anything other than just name footballers in the late 80s and early 90s, and we're very happy doing that. It, it, it gives us it's a very simple joy, but it, it is a great joy. Now, you've written about a lot of books. You've had 11 books done, one of them called Inverting the Pyramid. Now, what does that entail, Inverting the Pyramid? Do you want to see changes to the pyramid in football, or is it uh, an idea you just had that you want to write about? No, I mean, that refers very specifically to uh, formation. So when when, uh, when football begins, um, Football, let's say football begins 1863 when the Football Association is founded and the first laws of the game are drawn up. You can find earlier examples, but realistically, that's when the game begins. Uh, and it sort of drifts along, seems to be sort of a 1 1 8 formation, then, you know, um, uh, 1 2 7, then 2 2 6, and, and eventually, sort of early 1880s, it settles on 2 3 5, which is known as, as the pyramid. By the time that book was published in 2008, 5-3-2 would sort of become, not the standard, but it'd become a common way of play. So that 2 3 5 has flipped to 5 3 2. What's happened since is that tactics have evolved. Uh, and, you know, I've done four editions of that book now. So I've done three subsequent editions. The most recent one came out in the UK last year. I think it's come out in the US this year. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's what I'm referring to, the pyramid being, being flipped on its head. The metaphor has sort of slightly gone awry now because of developments over the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. No, that's amazing. But the one book I was informed about that you've written is on a former manager from Derby County and Nottingham Forest and Brian Clough. I hope I pronounced his last name correctly. What is it about this man who was such a great manager back in those times that uh, you wanted to uh, write about him and discuss his career? Well, there's, there's two aspects to that. So one is a, is a personal thing um, that when he was a player, and he, he was a great goal scorer in the second flight in England, um, scored pretty much a goal a game over 250 games, first in Middlesbrough, then for Sunderland. I'm from Sunderland, I'm a Sunderland fan. And he was my dad's favourite player. And that always slightly puzzled me because my dad was not somebody easily impressed by goals. He liked neat and tidy midfielders. Clough was not that. And so I was, I was, from a personal point of view, I was interested in, in sort of probing that. What was it? And actually, I think that was just because he got a devastating injury uh, on Boxing Day 1962, uh, which essentially finished his career. He did come back. He did play three more games, but essentially he was finished in his mid-20s. Um, and that Sunderland team was on the verge of promotion. It was a very bad winter, 62-3. Uh, there's a lot of games postponed. Some have had a load of games packed together towards the end of the season, and they drew a lot of them. And had they got one more point, they would have been promoted with a very good side. And you think, had Clough been there, he probably would have turned one of those draws into a win with his incredible finishing ability. And then Sunderland would have gone up with this great momentum. And I think that's why my dad warmed to him. So that's why my dad had such a strong attraction to him, because he was a you know, sense of this this lost world that could have been. But he then, um, I mean, he, he essentially starts drinking very heavily pretty quickly after the injury as the rehab's going badly. I mean, um, it was a, a ruptured Christian ligament, which he, you know, says he didn't come back from. Uh, and despite that, he has this great fire. He still clearly has a lot to prove. And he's one of only four men in the entirety of English football history, so going all the way back to the beginning of the league in um, 1888, he's one of only four men to win the league with two different clubs. But he did it with two middling clubs. He didn't do it with any giants. He did it with Derby and the Nottingham Forest. He picked both of them up when they were sort of mid-table in the second flight, took them to the league title. He took Derby to the semi-final of the European Cup in 1973 when they were almost certainly cheated out by Juventus. There's, so we know the referees for the second leg approaches were made to him to fix the game. So who knows what happened in the first leg. 
and then the Nottingham Forest, he does win the European Cup and retains it. And that achievement, when you look at Nottingham Forest and the size of Nottingham, the size of that club, compared to all the other teams who've ever won the European Cup or Champions League, is an extraordinary achievement. That's amazing. I, I, that is really amazing when you have a manager that has a... Uh, you would say, I would say probably an excellent pulse and can take the temperature of what their club needs to do to get the necessary results uh, to be positive. It sounds like he had a good nose and a good sense of what to do uh, and, and how to make the tactics work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he was... Well, he was very suspicious of talk about tactics. Um, he, he was very anti-intellectual, which I think is to do with his, his childhood and, and yeah, there lots of issues with his mother there, the fact he... He didn't get into grammar school. So in those days, you had grammar schools which were academically based, and then you had the more vocational schools. He failed the exams to get into grammar school. He was one of, I think, nine brothers, or nine, brothers, nine siblings. And I think I'm right in saying the other eight all got into grammar school, or maybe seven of the other eight got into grammar school. And this clearly eats away at them. So he hates theoretical, sort of philosophical discussions about football. He's very practical. What he was great at was moulding a team, seeing which players would, would work together, keeping it very simple. And he was a phenomenal man-manager. And he was massively eccentric. So there's, there's stories about him um, on the way to the uh, League Cup final in, I think, 1979, it might be 1978, where the game where they beat Southampton in the League Cup final. He gives the players a glass of champagne each on the bus on the way to the game and says, right, now go and earn it. Uh, so all these kind of odd tricks, odd quirks. You know, he he would regularly punch players. So Roy Keane, he famously punched um, one of the, you know, one of his own players as he, as he came for pitch at half time for not having done his you know, picked up his um, picked up the man he was supposed to be marking. Uh, he he was a very odd, very cantankerous, very difficult man who had this streak of genius. And then he actually becomes a tragic figure that. Uh, his longtime assistant, Peter Taylor, who he played with at Middlesbrough, was then his assistant coach at Hartlepool, at so Derby, again in Nottingham Forest. He has a huge falling out with him in 1981. They never speak again until when Taylor dies, and Clough never forgave himself for that. And that made the drinking worse. He, he's a full-blown alcoholic by the early 90s, and the first season of the Premier League, 93, Premiership as it was then, he leads Nottingham Forest to relegation, having tamed these gravity heights, and that's the end of his career. And the 90s really are this sort of slightly tragic phase of him popping up on television, often drunk, often being outrageous. Um, and, and I mean, it was 20 years ago this September that he died. So uh, what's that? 2004. Um, I mean, yeah, he wasn't an old man, but the alcohol had, had done for him. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a very classical story of somebody who seems to have, have everything gets this injury, which then drives him to new heights of management, but also sets in motion the demon that ultimately destroys him. That's a shame. Brilliant minds, unfortunately, uh, their uh, their life ends tragically like that. Let's go on to the Premier League now. You know, we have seen Manchester City dominating the Premier League for so many years, with the exception of the magical run by Leicester City. And then, of course, a couple of years ago, Liverpool winning the Premier League title uh, during the COVID season. But last year and currently this year, I think it's been the best we have ever seen the Premier League because it's not a one-club race. It's now three, four, five. I mean, we're seeing... So many clubs leapfrogging each other, like what Arsenal is doing, with all of a sudden Liverpool now currently at the top of the league table uh, right now. Aston Villa has come out of nowhere. Newcastle has been reborn, resurged. What is the difference these past last year and now this year that the Premier League is more exciting than ever before? Um, well, I, personally, I think City probably will still win the league this season. I think they'll put together a run in the second half of the season, similar to, to what they did last season. But I, I think it's just that more clubs have more money and possibly partly due to the problems of sustainability regulations that the clubs with the most money uh, are finding it difficult to spend that. And, and so there, there is a bit of dragging them back to the pack. 
I think a couple of City's recent signings um, have maybe not quite worked out how they'd like. So you look at Calvin Phillips, um, look at uh, Matias Nunez. I think even the signing of Holland, like he's got a lot of goals, he's, he's meant a change in style. They've had to modify how they play, which has made them vulnerable at times. The fact that they've lost um, okay, Gundogan last summer, I think he was a huge part of their midfield. I, but I do think this season the injuries have played a huge part. But now De Bruyne is back, when John Stones comes back, when Holland comes back, I, I think it would be very hard to stop them. Uh, Liverpool, uh, you know, the, the, the first great club team, the team that won the league, got old. And the process of renewal has gone on there. We'll see how they cope without Salah, who now looks like he'll be out for a month or so with his hamstring problem. But they have got strength and depth uh, in the forward line. Um, you know, they've refreshed that midfield. Whether they're still short of a, a really top class defensive midfielder, that might cost them. Uh, Arsenal spending, again, I think has been pretty sensible. Their, their squad is probably a little bit thin still to maintain the challenge, which we saw last season, that last sort of six weeks, two months. You could see the fatigue, and they, you know, they, they really dropped off towards the end. Um, but they've been able to bring in Declan Rice for over 100 million pounds, so they have spent a lot of money. Villa have quietly been spending a lot of money for quite a long time, and it was just a very bizarre decision to point Stephen Gerrard as the manager. I think held them back, but now they've got a proper manager. And you know, Emery we're seeing how good they can be. Newcastle, obviously, the, the Saudi takeover, Tottenham really had underperformed for a couple of years. Um, the, the move to the stadium. To the new stadium, and it's a brilliant stadium, but the repayments on the loan they took out for that meant they couldn't invest in the squad in the way they probably needed to to carry on under Pochettino. I don't think the Mourinho and Conte appointments held them back, but they now possibly have a manager who's refired and re-energised them. Uh, Manchester United are an enormous club. We continue to struggle, but they are an enormous club, and so they're always sort of in that top six, top eight picture. Um, Chelsea has spent a huge amount of money, although not necessarily particularly well, uh, but still, signs now that in the League Cup final this season that things are beginning to come together there. So fundamentally, it's just that there are more richer clubs, which is great for the Premier League. Whether it's good for football as a whole, I think is a, a different question. I want to go to Manchester United for a moment because obviously I, I'll admit that's my little bias because I do support Man United. Why is it Eric Ten Hag is struggling this year after the fantastic season he had last year? Won the League Cup. Uh, unfortunately, fell in the Europa League late in the tournament. Also fell in the FA Cup semifinals. But still, though, to me, um, they're not capitalizing on the success of last year. Is it, as you said, they're still struggling? Is it ownership? Is it Ten Hag's managing abilities is it i i don't want to say it might be but is there a little bit of grumblings going on with the players during training is it a little bit of both what, what do you see with man united right now well i think there are obviously long-term problems there that go back to i mean we've when the glazers took the club over i think there's been a lack of football expertise there right the way through from what was that 2006 they took over um and, and um, although they uh, spent a lot of money on players, I don't really think they spent particularly well, and they haven't spent money on other aspects of the club. So, you know, if you go to Old Trafford, the roof leaks. So, basic infrastructure, you know, the leaking roof is the most obvious visual metaphor you can have of the club. Um, the academy, I think, has been underfunded for 15, 20 years. Uh, the recruitment department has been underfunded for 15, 20 years, and that's why I think their, their signings are often seen slightly scattergun, um, very hard to sort of piece together what, what the long-term plan is. Uh, so, so that is clearly an issue, the ownership, and maybe with um, with Ineos coming in um, and, and Jim Ratcliffe buying 25% of the club and running the football side of the operation, maybe we'll see that change. And uh, bringing in Barada from, from City is probably a start of, of trying to put that right. Uh, but there are other issues. One is I think recruitment just has been so weird that the squad is a shambles. Um, I, I, you know, last season, I, 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 I sort of felt, you know, as you're suggesting there, I felt that things were moving in the right direction in Ten Hag. I thought he had the steeliness, the, the single-mindedness to, 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 to drag the, um, 
you know, dragged the ship back to the, onto the right course. I think getting rid of Cristiano Ronaldo was essential. I think he was a massive drain financially, but also just on, on emotion that everything had to be built around him. And yeah, he was what, 37 by the time he left the club. Yeah, he was no longer the player he had been. Uh, and if you're trying to build a, a Ten Hag style, um, you know, a club that can play in the, or a team that can play in the Ten Hag style way, the way he played at Ajax, you can't have somebody like that who doesn't press, who wanders about, who protests in training, it's all a bit too hard for him, uh, which is what you know, we know Mario Ronaldo was doing. Um, I think De Gea caused massive problems because De Gea great shots over the years, doesn't play the ball out from the back with any great comfort. That's why he was dropped by Spain. And realistically, I think Ten Hag had to get rid of him if he was going to go to something like his Ajax style. The one doubt I had last season was they won a lot of games by a single goal. They, they, they scraped through a lot of games. And I was prepared to sort of think that is them having a winning mentality, having the, the mental toughness to, to get over the line. But actually, I now think it was they just weren't that good. And this season, I mean, I, uh, I think it's only the 3 0 winner of Everton that they, a game they won by more than one goal. Um, I think you look at the midfield, Casemiro's started to look his age. Um, and he started to look his weight, uh, which is, I think is an issue since he came back in the summer. Mason Mount, I think his confidence was shattered last season. He then had the injury problems. Uh, Ericsson is being asked to play much deeper than I think would be ideal for him. And he just doesn't have the stamina anymore to last more than 60, 65 minutes. And so what that means is people like Scott McTominay, who Ten Hag was very open about trying to sell last summer, McTominay is having to play regularly. And, and yeah, he's done fine, but there's a reason why Ten Hag wants to get rid of him. Uh, Gabby Bainey's come in and has done really well, but he's 18. You can't you can't rely on him. He, he can't be the centrepiece in the midfield. Rashford had a golden season last season, and, and maybe his goals, his um, you know, that, 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 that runner game he had where basically where he couldn't miss, maybe that covered up a lot of the cracks last season. This season his form's dropped off. He looks pretty disaffected. Anthony's never really settled, uh, which again is just a very odd bit of recruitment. For, you know, Eighty odd million for a you know, player who's pretty average. He's basically got one trick, which is to come inside, and he does it all the time. Um, you, you'd hope there's something more than that. Highland looks a very good player potentially, but he's what 21, 22, and costs a lot of money. So there, there are so many issues there. It's very hard to, to isolate a single one. And I, th- I think Ten Hag this season. Yeah, I think I think United as a club, it's it's an extraordinary thing that United are the the most successful club in English history, and yet they've only won the league under three different managers. There's only Alex Ferguson, Matt Busby, and Ernest Magnell back before the First World War who'd ever won the league with them. So actually, in a sense, United history, although they are the most successful team in English history, English league history, their history is also one of failure that they haven't really capitalised on having the biggest stadium which they did have from 1908 or 1909 when Old Trafford was, was completed. Um, you know, certainly since games televised regularly in the early 60s, they have, they have been the best support team in England, and that support now reaches around the world. And it's the revenues they, they derive from that that's keeping them competitive. But really, with those revenues, it's such an advantage, uh, particularly in terms of FFP and uh, PSR, that they, they, they should be much better than they are. So I, I think that is is debilitating for managers, and I think you've seen Ten Hag starting to be diminished by that. And, of course, this is an American soccer show. We are going to mix in football talk in the Premier League with American uh, ownership players, managers. Let's start with ownership first. What are your thoughts on the current stable of American owners running clubs, obviously Kroenke with Arsenal, uh, the new ownership group with uh, in Chelsea, of course, where he talked about the Glazers, we'll mix them in again as well, um, and the Boston Red Sox owner with Liverpool. What what gives you confidence, or what is your thoughts with American ownership in Premier League football? I mean, I think some have been pretty good, and I think some have been pretty bad. Um, I think there's a general concern, and this doesn't just refer to American owners, but overseas owners, to what extent do they understand the culture of English football, and that really came to focus with the Super League talk. 
that um, if you look at the six clubs who were seduced, six English clubs who were seduced by that, uh, four of the, uh, sorry, three of them? Uh, hang on. Uh, United, Liverpool, and Arsenal, uh, we, uh, US owned, Chelsea, obviously one of them, but we, at the time under Abramovich. Um, and, and I think that's always a fear of uh, when, when you come from a culture, the sporting culture like the US, where you have the closed leagues, the franchise system, it, to what extent is it grasped that that is just not the way it is done in Europe, it's not the way English football works, that relegation can happen, that nothing is guaranteed, and that yes, it makes it hard to plan for the future and you don't know how much money you're going to get, but that's the game. And you either accept that or you, you know, you've got no business there. And uh, hopefully the, 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 the level of the fury when the um, Super League proposals were made public and you know, literally people were out in the streets protesting within hours, uh, hopefully that will have persuaded people that that's really not viable. Um, I mean, there, there was certainly um, John W. Henry at Liverpool made a very apologetic statement and, and seemed contrite. I mean, you know, who knows to what extent he is. But um, th th that's the concern. But on the other hand, the positive is a lot of money has been pumped in. Um, I think the one who's attracted the most attention recently is, is Todd Bowley at Chelsea, um, a minority uh, shareholder, but he's been the public face of it, or he was, he seems to step back now. And he came in and made some pretty, let's be generous and call them bold statements. Uh, <laughs> suggested he really didn't grasp what was going on at all. And I think Chelsea's uh, transfer policy suggests that. Um, I mean, there seemed to be no recognition. Yes. The thing that got me was when he came in and started talking about an all-star game. And you think, well, okay, you know, it's, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not going to happen. It, there's no space in the calendar for it. It's not part of our culture. It won't happen. But then actually you think, what does it mean? And what it means is, is he doesn't realise that football is not about buying the best 11 players and sticking them together. It's about the coalitions between players. It's about getting a team that has balance. And you look at the you know, billion pounds, a billion pounds he spent over the last three windows, and they got a team into shambles. Um, there doesn't seem to be a recognition that you can't just buy kids. You have a, yes, the kids should accrue in value. Yes, you buy young and you develop and you sell when they get a bit older. But you need experience there to pass on the knowledge to the younger kids. You know, younger players have wilder fluctuations of form. And that's what we've seen with Chelsea. There are a load of players, I mean, Mudrick, Jackson, I think most obviously, went to a spell where they just couldn't score a goal. The, 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 this blind panic sort of gripped them. And when that happens, you either need an older player there to sort of say, oh, dear, don't worry about it, this is how I got through a spell like this. Or you need to take that firing line and, and let them work that out for themselves. But just exposing them over and over again, the, the risk is you, you destroy them. If I can ask you this, and obviously they're in Wales, but, you know, the whole phenomenon with the uh, Wrexham Club, and of course there are documentary series called Welcome to Wrexham that's streamed all over around the world. Uh, here in the state, it's taken a foothold on uh, one of our uh, cable channels. What has Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds done to this club? And at, at the same time, I know they're currently in the League Two in the EFL, but with the way that they have brought in, I would say, new money, new hope, and the way that they've brought in Phil Parkinson, who has done a magnificent job managing them, do you think they could be the fastest club to get promoted to the Premier League if they continue on in this trajectory? I mean, they could. I'd be, I'd be slightly surprised. Um, but, it, you know, it's possible. I mean, getting out of the National League into League Two was the first step. Um, Wrexham really aren't the club who should be in the National League. You know, their history is of being a league club. Uh, so, you know, they were they were a good club to buy. You know, I think they did their research there, the Vegetal as well, to, to pick a club that was down on its luck, that, that had immediate potential. But the truth is, Wrexham have never been a top flight club. And to, to make that transition, even to make the transition to League One, I think is very difficult. League One to the Championship is another jump again. Championship to the Premier League is extremely difficult. I honestly don't know how they can raise the revenues to... Um, 
with with the present stadium and the present level of support now, maybe they can draw support from all around the country, all around the world, if if, if the, the documentary series continues to be successful. But to raise that sort of revenue, to be able to uh, spend the amount of money they have to spend, I think would be very very difficult. But as artists, they seem to have done everything right so far. They, I think they they do seem to grasp Wrexham. They do seem to grasp what what fans they want. Um, I think developing the stadium, they, they've done that in a in a subtle and clever and you know a, a fitting way. That the, the, the new stand they built needed replacing, and they've done it in a way that fits in with, with everything else that's there. They seem respectful of the English football pyramids or English and Welsh football pyramids. Um, but to keep going is very, very hard. And, and that for me is the, the slight concern. And I, I, whenever I express any doubt, I preface it with, they have been excellent owners so far and I can't fault really what they've done so far. But if they've bought the club to provide content for the documentary, what do they do if in say three, four years, they're still floating around mid-table in League Two? How do they generate interesting content and that would be my concern with anybody who buys a club to generate content. Um, you know, do they go out and sign, I don't know, Mario Balotelli just to get you know, a larger-than-life character through the door who will give you something for the you know, second half of the season that's drifting? And does it stop being about what's on the pitch? Now, as I said, there's been no signs of that so far, but, but that was always my concern with, with clubs who start. You know, where their starting point is, we are generating content for a documentary or, or, or whatever. Let's move on to the managers now. Um, you know, we have had two American managers move to the Premier League. Of course, there was Bob Bradley, who had that very, very abrupt short time at Swansea when they were in the Premier League many years ago. And recently, Jesse Marsh had, I would say, maybe, if you want to say the day was higher to the point where he was sacked uh, a full year in between two seasons at Leeds. Why do you think American managers have not been successful in the Premier League? And what do they need to do to maybe change that? Um, it's very difficult. I mean, fundamentally, English managers aren't successful in the Premier League either. You know, there hasn't been an English winner in the Premier League ever as a manager. Uh, 1992, with Howard Wilkinson and Leeds, was the last time an English manager won the league. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very difficult. If you're not being appointed to, to one of the top three or four clubs... It's really, really hard. Um, yeah, Bob Bradley, I think the situation he inherited at Swansea was, was difficult. Uh, I think yeah, they, they had been a, a sort of the, the poster boys for sensible ownership. Yeah, they, they'd been on the verge of bankruptcy. The new owners took over. Um, you know, local businessmen who, who take them up through the leagues. And that, that is a model maybe for, for Exxon to follow. Um, it is possible. Um, and they've done that very sensibly. They had a very clear philosophy. They kept on appointing coaches who fitted that philosophy, and then they sold out. And the new owners, I think, were less good. There was chaos, and Bob Bradley walked into that situation, and, and really just didn't have time to sort it out. It was he, he, he took over a team that was sinking fast, and they continued to sink, and the club had panicked, and they got rid of him in the hope that a new manager could suddenly drag things around. So I think he was there in too difficult a circumstance and in for too short a time to really judge him on that. Jesse Marsh and Leeds, to an extent, fairly similar. The Leeds are a club who had been out of the Premier League for 17 years. They'd come up under Marcelo Bielsa. He was this sort of messianic figure who Leeds fans adored, and they were never going to adore the next manager. As soon as things began to go wrong for the next manager, everyone's going to be, oh, he's not Bielsa, he's not as good as Bielsa. And that was always going to be very difficult. Uh, so in the same way that we've seen in Iomery has been very, very good for Villa, when he replaced Wenger at Arsenal, it was almost impossible. Uh, with Leeds, I think the affection for Bielsa was even more intense. There hadn't been that long sort of drift at the end that Wenger had had. Um, so it was, it was, you know, the problems were there when he came in. Um, the, the, the thing that was very odd, I thought, about the ownership was that they clearly decided, okay, we've brought in a, a manager, Jesse Marsh, who's, who's been part of the Red Bull system. We're going to let him sign Red Bull players. And then they sack him sort of three weeks later. So I think it was in the February, wasn't it, when he was sacked. And he brought in uh, two or three players that January 
from Red Bull clubs. Um, he had people like Brendan Anderson who, who were there. He'd, he'd been at Red Bull before. So if you're saying, right, we'll go full Red Bull, why do you suddenly stop in, in the February before that's really our time to bed in? So that was the odyssey there. But I think the situation had become pretty toxic and it, it was pretty difficult. So I'm not sure it is anything. It is anything that, that, that either Bob Bradley or Jesse Marsh did wrong. It's just circumstances sometimes against you, particularly when you're managing clubs from you know, the lower half of the Premier League where relegation is always a threat. Now we move on to the players. Um, obviously, there's been some fantastic Americans that have played in the Premier League. Obviously, one of them is going to be inducted into our National Soccer Hall of Fame, former uh, Everton goalkeeper Tim Howard. Um, did you like what Tim Howard did when he was in the Premier League? And what other players did you like from the past and, of course, current players that are in the Premier League right right now? Yeah, I mean, Tim Howard was one of a, a number of very, very good American keepers who played in the Premier League. That seems to be a position that translated very well. Um, I mean, he was pretty good at Manchester United and then Everton even better. Um, I think if you look at the league now, actually, Matt Turner, I have to say I'm not convinced by Forrest. I think his struggles with the ball at his feet are, are a big problem for him. Um, I was at the game when they lost to Brentford at the weekend. And Brentford had obviously picked up that he, he doesn't really like being physically challenged for crosses because every time he got a chance to swing in a corner, he was an in-swinger putting pressure on him. Um, I think you know, my favourite US player in the Premier League, I mean, I'd say this with my Sunderland fans hat on, would definitely be Gladio Reyna. Um, just very neat, tidy player. Was very popular at Sunderland for the brief time he was there. Um, certainly more popular than Jesse Alderdale was in Sunderland among Americans. Although Jesse Alderdale was the player foul to get the penalty in Sanford Bridge in the 2 1 win that kept Sunderland up famously under Gus Boyett, so he still gets credit for that. Um, at the moment, uh, I think the player who really stands out is Anthony Robinson at, uh, at Fulham. His link up with William down the left is is really good. Uh, Tim Ream obviously is there as well, but Tim Ream always, always feels a bit like an accident waiting to happen, but, but Robinson, I think. Looks a genuinely excellent player, and, and yeah, that that, that link up with Willian, I think he probably would have learned a lot from that, and that that can only be positive for him going forward. Speaking about the Reynas, obviously talked about Claudio. Uh, apparently, there's rumors going around that his son Gio might be transferring out of uh, Borussia Dortmund to Nottingham Forest. Uh, what do you think about that uh, signing if it does happen? I mean, it's, it's interesting, if only because Forrest are clearly so strapped for cash. I mean, I'm amazed that they're making more signings, given that they're facing a points deduction. But may, maybe the, the sale of Brandon Johnson gives them a bit of leeway with that. But he would give them uh, just a, you know, a dash of quality, a, a, a dash of guile that maybe they've lacked. Uh, well, uh, they're, they're, they're very reliant, I think, for that on Morgan Gibbs-White. And so to add an extra figure uh, clearly would help. Uh, I mean, he, he was born in Sunderland, of course, when Claudio was at Sunderland. So, uh, from that point of view, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of him. He may be the best Sunderland-born player playing currently in the world, now that Jordan Henderson's starting to climb. No, oh, that's amazing stuff there. And we'll see what happens uh, with the transfer window still open, obviously. And it should be a lot of fun to see who improves and uh, who might remain where they are. Um, you know, obviously, the biggest uh, elephant in the room is, of course, uh, VAR, Video Assistant Referee. Uh, obviously, it finally sparked what happened in the 2010 World Cup in South Africa when England should have had a goal allowed, but um, they did not allow it, and I guess that was the last straw. What, what's your thoughts on the usage of it? And if we're being honest, English officials have not done well um, working the uh, the contraption the way it should. I mean, I think it's improved a little bit with certain officials, but as a whole, it doesn't seem like it's working well for them. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's a specifically English problem. Um, whenever I talk to people who watch a lot of Italian or German football or Spanish football, they seem to have similar issues. So I, I think it is an issue with VAR per se. Although having said that, its use in the African Cup of Nations so far has been extraordinarily slick and you know, uncomplicated and uncontroversial. So, so maybe, maybe it is something to do with with uh, league officials. Um, my, my feeling with it is that 
like a lot of things in football, like a lot of things generally in the world at the minute, they're imposed without any proper consultation. So I I think now that we have the technology and now that games, certainly Premier League games, you have 20-odd, 30-odd cameras there, so the vast majority of angles will be covered. I, I, I can see the, the demand for it. Uh, there was always something slightly absurd that um, people were sitting at home watching on TV could see something had been obviously wrong and people in the stadium couldn't. And you have people in the stadium watching their phones and literally the only person in the world who, who knew that he made it, hadn't, you know, who didn't realise he made a mistake was the referee. Um, so I, 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 can, I can see the demands for it. But... I, I think a lot of the issues we've had have been some basic teething problems that could have been ironed out with a with a better process. So I don't see why we couldn't have had a year where you try it in different forms in, I don't know, say the Belgian third division, the Finnish third division, the Swiss third division, you know, lower leagues, give them a bit of money to, to, to be the guinea pigs. And you have working groups looking at those leagues. And, and I don't know, say one of them, you have... Um, managers get three appeals during a game. One of them you have somebody talking to the referee. One of them you have the system we have now. And you work out what works and you work out what doesn't. And say halfway through the season, those working groups came back. They they pulled their results. They said what's worked in our country, what's what's worked in yours. They maybe refined those systems and went back. Played the second half of the season, came back at the end of the year, produced a full report. You could then have. You put that to the players, the managers, the referees, to referees, to journalists, to, to fans, and, and, and see what we like, rather than just go, well, this, we're doing it, this is how it works. And, and that, I think, has led to huge numbers of problems, um, and the process really has not been robustly tested. So now it's here, I think we're not going to get rid of it, but I have to say, watching the championship or watching FA Cup games where you don't have it, there's a sense of purity and a sense of relief about it not least because the, the game is finished in just over 90 minutes rather than lasting 105, 110 minutes. Um, which, yeah, from a journalistic point of view, when you're on a tight deadline, that's not ideal. But even if you're a fan, you, you kind of probably want to know when you're leaving the ground and when you're going to get home, uh, if you've got a train to catch. Uh, but also just the hanging around, the waiting. Um, you know, it's, it's the worst of all worlds now for fans in the stadium and for four or five minutes. They're standing there, sitting there, you know, staring at the referee with you know holding his, his earpiece in, waiting to be told what decision to give. And everybody watching the time on TV, at least we're seeing the replays, we know what's going on, we know what's being discussed. But in stadiums, you don't have that. And it, it seems to me that the match-going fan is, is still the person we should be catering to first and foremost, and they are being left out of this. Um, so, I, I mean, firstly, I wouldn't have introduced it. I was always a sceptic. I was prepared to say, yeah, let's try, let, let's let's work out if it does work. But at the moment, it seems to me to have been largely a negative for football. Mm. Well, we'll see what happens down the road, and hopefully there will be improvements and everything will be fine. And before I let you go, my final thought with you is this, or my final question to you is this. Um, ever since the, uh, the situation with uh, the World Cup being given to Qatar, and uh, the Sepp Blatter era ending. What do you think about Johnny Infantino, who was once the um, the UEFA director of competitions during those UEFA Champions League draws, him running FIFA now? What do you think of his presidency currently, and what do you think he needs to improve, or do you think he's doing well? You no, know, he's doing terribly. It's been a disaster. He's far worse than Blatter. I mean, Blatter was not good, don't get me wrong, but he's the least bad of the last four FIFA presidents. I mean, it's, you know, we're really sort of, it's the lowest of low bars, but but he he is the best of the last four. Um, I I think at least, I mean, he definitely loved money and he definitely loved luxury, but I think he also loved football. And while he made some calls I would have disagreed with and while he allowed corruption to press on his watch, um, I think he he did what he did to have a, a genuine belief he was doing what was right for the game. And taking the World Cup to South Africa uh, was a was a great step in, in spreading the game around the world. Infantino, um, yeah, seems to have absolutely no truck with closing up to to Putin, to MBS, to the Emir of Qatar. 
Um, you know, he, he's quite happy to take golf money without really asking questions where it's come from. Uh, you've got major issues. For, so if you if you look at things for statutes, you look at statute, uh, statute three or statute four, which is against discrimination. And it says that it is offence under the FIFA statutes to discriminate on the grounds of gender, race, sexuality, age, and a whole list of other things. Well, tell me how the Qatar World Cup did not breach that. And nothing was done. Nothing was done. The, the, the plight of migrant workers in Qatar, there was some sort of lip service paid to, oh, we'll, we'll drag out some workers and we'll pretend that everything is good for them and we'll put them in good conditions for this six months. Yeah. Thousands of people died building their stadiums, and nothing was done. Um, he's he's been a disastrous appointment, and, and he, even sort of the, the less serious stuff. Everything is done is a fait accompli. You know, everything is done by fiat. There's there's never any any consultation. So, all right, okay, the next World Cup is going to be 48 teams. Right? Have we actually consulted? Does anybody want this? Are there better ways of involving more of the world? Other ways we could tweak qualifications to make more of the world feel involved. What What are the practicalities of a 48 team tournament? It basically means a tiny number of countries can host the tournament. Uh, only the very biggest, very richest countries, but even they have to have their neighbours helping them. Um, and maybe that's what we want, but there, there, there's never any consultation. How are we going to structure that tournament? And initially, oh, we'll have 16 groups of three, without realising that that would lead inevitably to either match fixing, well, you know, either, either teams um, colluding on results because the last two teams to play will know what they what they need for both to go through, or it will lead to dead rubbers if you only have one team each group going through. And suddenly, the last one comes, oh, you know what, four team groups are great, it's going to be 12 groups of four. Again, no consultation at all. Everything is done by fiat. There's just no discussion. So it's a dictatorship in all but name. Um, What's going on with Confederation of African Football and FIFA is, is outrageous. Um, the, the way that uh, it's, it's run as a, a sort of a FIFA puppet, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's appalling. Uh, so, yeah, things have got immeasurably worse under Infantino. That's Jonathan Wilson from The Guardian as well as from The Observer. He also writes a weekly column in The Observer on football and everything else. And before I actually, before I let you go, I really, I forgot to ask you this question because this is the one question um, that I have seen or at least what, what I have uh, been privy to towards social media with American football, American soccer supporters, because they feel that American players who are not in the top four leagues in Europe, meaning the Premier League, uh, La Liga, Serie A, the Bundesliga, that if they go anywhere else in Europe, it's not at the same level as those top four leagues. And, you know, I feel personally that if you're going to be playing in Romania or you're playing in Hungary or in a country where, okay, it's not the top four, it's not the Netherlands, it's not France, it's not Scotland, you know, it's not uh, anywhere big. But if you're getting your minutes, isn't it good enough to play in these nations and that you should be considered for the national team? Uh, I mean, uh, that's a huge question. Um, I, 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 I think... We've seen with, um, say, Brazilian players, a lot of them went to play in Ukraine. I mean, obviously, the war has made things more complex there, but you know, Shakhtar had a vaguely a policy of signing Brazilians, and it served as a stepping stone to get into one of the bigger leagues. Portugal, at a slightly high level, do that. So, I, you know, I think that's an entirely viable career path to plot. Um, I think it very much depends on the, on the individual player, whether they would prefer to be playing in one of those lower uh, European leagues, um, it could be very good for their development. It could set them back. It, it, it's it's very much a case by case basis. But I mean, there is there is a very obvious tiering of European leagues, and and I think you see that even with players going from the Bundesliga to the Premier League, that you get some supremely good players, uh, Kevin De Bruyne, um, Erling Haaland, for instance, and you get others who look great in Germany who've really struggled. Um, so Kai Havertz, for instance, um, Timo Werner, Jaden Sancho, uh, 
So, yeah, I think you have to be very aware of that stratification. But it, it may well be good for your development to go to, to somewhere lower down, learn a new football culture, um, get yourself in the shop window by playing in the Conference League or the Europa League, and maybe attract the attention of a, um, of a club in a higher league. Uh, but, yeah, there are obvious risks. So as to whether they should be called for the national team, and that, that entirely depends how they're playing, what the situation is, what their role is, and, and, and what the space for them in the national team will be. Jonathan Wilson, once again from the Guardian Observer. Jonathan, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. And uh, if you ever want to come back on, you're more than welcome to do so. Thank you for your time, sir. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. And once again, that's Jonathan Wilson from The Guardian and The Observer. Uh, great interview with him. Uh, really enjoyed my time talking to him, and it was a fantastic interview with all the questions I had. And, of course, had to throw in the Wrexham situation because you never know. They may – we'll see what happens. You know, look, if they can get promoted quickly – um, from League Two to League One next year and maybe to the championship, maybe the Premier League. We'll see what happens. Now, once again, it will be a dogfight. That's no doubt in my mind. It'll be a dogfight to maybe get to the Premier League one day, but you never know. Maybe they will have a magic run and they'll get quickly promoted and they can get to the Premier League. So we'll see what happens there. But outside of that, outside of that, I really enjoyed my time with Mr. Wilson and uh, I really do hope... You enjoyed listening to that just as much as I enjoyed doing that interview. Uh, Don't forget, next month, coming around the corner, is the month of February. Get ready for the CONCACAF Champions Cup first round review shows. It's going to be each and every Friday next month. The first two weeks, or should I say the first two Fridays, we'll be reviewing each leg for Liga MX sides and, of course, the Vancouver Whitecaps and Hamilton Forge, and then, of course, the next two weeks at the back end of February, it's going to be MLS reviews as well as Cavalry uh, from uh, the Canadian Premier League. So it's going to be exciting, a lot of fun. I have my guests uh, start lining them up very soon. But as always, everyone, this is, of course, hoping you guys will enjoy uh, these shows and enjoying what's going to happen moving forward and we're going to have some fun here uh but once again i want to thank my guest jonathan wilson from the guardian and the observer over in england for the interview i really appreciate it and uh let's get ready for some more shows next week it'll be on monday and friday of course once again next month very soon around the corner the Concacaf champions cup review shows will be coming to all of you very very soon My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you very much for listening to me tonight. And as always, please enjoy your football. Thank you. Take care so long and have a good night. And bye-bye for now. Have a good night, everybody.